Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. Coming up, what you should know about The Onion's recall. Adam Oldfield will talk about social media hanging on to your deleted content. And this week, Michigan will make history as the first state to dedicate highway lanes to automated vehicles. It's a game changer. We'll discuss it. But first, this may be of interest to you. Talk about winning the lottery. If you're an OLG executive, you kind of did just that. And it's nothing uh, that's nefarious going on here. I'm talking about the fact that although first quarter financial reports were released last week and revealed that the expected revenue from the OLG has declined to $600 million from an expected $809 million, OLG executives are still up for their bonuses despite $200 or $200 million revenue loss. And the fact that thousands of industry uh, workers that that work at casinos um, that the OLG is in charge of, they they are not basically working for the OLG. They're not directly employed by the OLG, but they do work at the casinos that the OLG heads. Uh, They are still laid off. Uh, The province uh, has not given specific dollar figures about the bonuses, but they're saying that they're under review. They're from the work they did in 2019. Here to talk about it, Jasmine Moulton. Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jack, uh, Jasmine, I imagine you'll have a lot to say about this. Absolutely, Kelly. So normally people don't get a massive bonus when their employer is broke, but it looks like if you work for government, that's the case. And so from our perspective, this is just the latest example that goes to show there's a fundamental disconnect between government employee compensation and reality. Right, because most of us are pulling back. We're tightening our belts. And then you've got the OLG spokesperson saying, well, wait a minute, I get it. We're losing some money here, but this is money that these employees have learned, have earned based on the work completed in 2019. They might have a point, but it it seems rather tone deaf when you're thinking about the pandemic and where everyone else is. Absolutely. We just saw in Ontario from February to May, 2.2 million Ontarians lost their jobs or had hours significantly reduced due to the pandemic. There are 15,000 casino workers who have now been unemployed for the last five months. Um, Look, the province's financial update yesterday, uh, it shows that the OLG is expected to miss revenue targets by 200 million this year. And I'd also point out that the province, aka taxpayers, gave the OLG a $500 million loan to support the organization back in May. This is not an organization that is performing well at the moment. And look, it might not be completely their fault that uh, the, you know, the pandemic hit. That's not their fault. But if you look at the amount of employees they have on the sunshine list, uh, hundreds and hundreds, uh, the OLG has no business giving its top executives who earn, you know, in some cases over $700,000. There's no reason that they should be getting uh, big bonuses this year when the finance, the province is bleeding money. And so is their organization. Yeah, uh, just to make sure that everybody's crystal clear about what you were talking about with the hundreds of employees on the OLG staff that make more than $100,000, uh, 446 to be exact, according to this article I'm reading. That's, uh, that's a, lot of, a lot of them. So, you know, this isn't an organization that's supposed to be generating 
revenues for the province. They're $200 million off the mark and giving themselves bonuses. But like I said, this is so typical of uh, government mentality. The government employee wage premium in Ontario has been well documented for years. Um, and studies dating back to the 1970s from the University of Toronto have confirmed this. But also the Fraser Institute uh, recently pegged the government employee wage premium in Ontario at 10.3%. So what I mean by the government employee wage premium is that government employees earn higher salaries, have better benefits, they retire sooner with better pensions than comparable counterparts uh, working outside the world of government. And let's consider the latest example of this as well beyond the OLG. Teachers accepted a raise in April, while, again, like I said, 2.2 million Ontarians had lost their jobs or had hours reduced. And let's look at the province. The province... Their revenues were down by $14 billion, and it's even more in their latest update. Why is the province giving teachers and a government-wide raise when they're bleeding money? Ontario is the largest subnational debtor on the planet. Our debt's approaching $400 billion, uh, and the updated financials released this week show our deficit has ballooned to $39 billion. Now is not the time to be patting ourselves on the back with taxpayer-funded lavish bonuses and raises. Now is the time to tighten our belt. I want to get back to the OLG for a second, because I, I think definitely you raised some great points about just the whole uh, public sector uh, and their wages. But the OLG, their spokesperson noted that these employee bonuses are tied to work completed in 2019. It's performance re- related pay and it's tied to the annual targets set by their board of directors. Could there be legal ramifications to not paying this bonus? Is that why the province is considering what they should be doing right now. They're, they're currently kind of reviewing this. Well, let's consider what would happen in the private sector. Usually, if executives wanted a big bonus in the middle of a pandemic, regardless of when the period was for, uh, probably their shareholders would have something to say about that. The look is really bad. The optics are not good here. And so who is the OLG's one shareholder? It's the government of Ontario, meaning that taxpayers own it. Um, So the OLG reports to the Minister of Finance, um, and taxpayers need answers from, from Rod Phillips. But what further complicates this situation is the fact that Rod Phillips, Ontario's finance minister, before he was in that position, I believe he was the former president and CEO of the OLG. So the optics here are terrible. I'm not, you know, necessarily mm-hmm. making an accusation. I'm just saying it's not a good look. It almost appears as though he's signing off on bonuses for his buddies over at the OLG. Right. And they're they're currently reviewing this. It, why not give us the specific dollar figures around the bonuses? Do we not at least are we not owed at least that much the transparency that this government promised us? Look, they're probably a little bit red in the cheeks right now about the size of those bonuses. Uh, it does seem, especially when there are 15,000 casino workers who are laid off, that the president and CEO, who has missed his revenue targets uh, by a long shot, um, you know, that they're taking these massive, massive bonuses. And at the same time, he's making, you know, not only six figures, but over $700,000. So um, this has just got so far out of hand that I don't blame them for wanting to to hide that amount. But I do think that the finance minister owes taxpayers uh, some answers to our questions. Did he sign off on these bonus checks uh, since he's in charge of the OLG? How much did these bonus checks cost? Taxpayers need accountability. We didn't vote for the president of the OLG, but, you know, taxpayers did vote for this government and this government needs to be accountable. 
Have you reached out to the finance minister and what have uh, what was the response to the Canadian Taxpayers Payers Federation? So we were obviously outraged by this. Um, it's extremely tone deaf in the middle of a pandemic where the province is bleeding money to be giving out these bonuses. Uh, we will be reaching out to them. This story really only just broke. Uh, they didn't put out a news release to brag about, uh, oh, brag no? about these <laughs> big raises that we're giving. Um, but look, we've also um, we've been holding the government uh, quite strongly to account on the pay discrepancy between government employees. Like I said, this is just the latest example that shows the disconnect between government employee compensation and reality. And this is an issue we've been holding the government to account on for a long time. The government-wide raise that it gave out uh, in the middle of the pandemic while everyone else was unemployed cost taxpayers $720 million every year. And it's going to cost that much more next year and the year after that. Uh, if you're if an employer is broke, there's no reason that they should be giving pay raises and lavish bonuses. So this OLG example is just the, la- uh, the latest drop in the bucket. Yeah, and if I worked at the OLG, isn't the bonus that I work at the OLG? <laughs> You would think so, but it kind of seems like, you know, anywhere you work in government these days seems like a bit of a, a lottery winning in itself. Um, look, taxpayers can barely afford uh, to pay their taxes this year, let alone, um, you know, rent and mortgage. They're struggling, certainly in Toronto. Uh, and so the fact that uh, John Tory, for example, also raised taxes this year, raised property taxes. Uh, you know, the government is giving raises to to its employees. Where is this money coming from? It's coming from struggling taxpayers. So it's absolutely absurd that these governments are not only raising taxes in the case of uh, Toronto, but uh, giving out lavish raises in the cases of Ontario. Let me remind you, this premier was elected to uh, cut the fat. He promised to restore respect for taxpayers, giving out bigger bonuses and raises to already very well-paid government employees is the last thing that this government should be doing, especially in COVID-19. But let me remind your listeners, they were a bigger spender than Kathleen Wynne well before COVID-19 struck. So this is an issue that's come to characterize the Ford government. He needs to tighten his belt. um, And and certainly in the case of Rod Phillips, he owes taxpayers some answers as to why OLG is uh, is getting these big bonuses when when a lot of its workforce is laid off. Well, Jasmine, I want to thank you for bringing some insight into uh, this story. As you say, it's just uh, broke. So uh, we're all over it and we appreciate you giving us some uh, insight into it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Kelly. Cheers. That's Jasmine Moulton. She's director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Ontario director. U.S. grown onions continue to be pulled off Canadian grocery store shelves over concerns of salmonella illness. I myself, uh, one of my my New Year's resolution this year was fairly easy. Don't waste food. So when I was throwing away a bag of red onions that were from California the other day, my husband looked at me and, and questioned what I was up to. And I told him more than 230 Canadians have fallen ill with salmonella and another 20 have been hospitalized. So I'd like to avoid that in our household by uh, ditching the onions now. Keith Warner is a food science professor professor at the University of Guelph. He joins the show now. Keith, good to have you on. Uh, good morning, Kelly. So this uh, recall started with um, red onions. It now includes yellow, white, sweet onions. These may have been sold in grocery stores or at various restaurants. They also could have been sold in bulk or in smaller packages with or without a label. What do we do here? What should the average person um, do? Should we simply just ditch the onions we bought? Well, it is a confusing uh, sort of situation. This is the sort of uh, representation of what the market's like. Uh, So when we go to the supermarket 
buy onions. And even if those onions were labelled Thompson onions, uh, yeah, we can easily identify them. But the thing is, is that it goes under different brands. And because it's a commodity, the kind of um, take onions and just uh, put them in different sort of brand names and some are just sold actually loose without any labels on so i can see why people are confused about uh, you know, should i have these onions should i throw them out um the thing is is that all the cases that we know of both in the u.s and uh, here have been caused by red onions. And when we had the product recall, I think they tried to limit it to red onions because with red onions, they're the ones you tend to put into salads and whatnot. Um, but then uh, with the recall, because we don't know where these onions ended up, and Thompson didn't know where the onions ended up, uh, with having this sort of, um, what's the word, overabundance of uh, safety. Caution, try yeah. Recall all the, so... The thing is, though, to answer your question, if you've got any doubts, you know, Canadian onions are good, you know, they're fine. But if you've got any doubts at all, it's best to throw them out because uh, bad salmonella is not the best thing to have. Keith, can you tell if an onion will give you salmonella? Like, is there any sign? Is there any smell? Is there any, is there any way to tell? No, there isn't, um, essentially, because salmonella it just sits there. It's a very, and salmonella Newport, which we have, you know, lasts a long time. It's very tolerant and resistant. And the thing is, though, cooking does kill salmonella. So when you fry your onions, you're fine. Uh, but okay. the thing is, what's real the big issue is people put onions into salsa, guacamole, cheese dips, all these kind of things that uh, are eaten raw. So that's where the big issue is. Okay, so there's, in fact, you brought up salsa there, but there's also a full list of the products made with Thompson onions, like salsa, chicken quesadillas, Greek pasta, sandwiches that the government also put on their recall list. And we don't know uh, what restaurants received these Thompson onions, the the Seminola onions. And so the Canadian Food Inspection Agency just recommended to Global News that if you go to a restaurant, ask the staff if they know where the onions came from, if they came from Thompson International. I, I've been a server before. Keith, that's ridiculous. Is there yeah, a more just, realistic <laughs> practice when say, eating out? Um, you know, if you ask a restaurateur where he gets his onions from, he'll probably say the wholesaler, isn't it? Um, right. You know, and again, that's the, the problem is that, Unless you know your onions, so to speak, as the saying goes, uh, it's, it's not worth the risk of doing it. Because... Is there really a saying surrounding unless you know your onions? Yeah, so it's a British saying. So, okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you know your onions and things like that, uh, I think we've got an equivalent here. Uh, but uh, you're right, if you're in doubt. Now, it is over-precautionary, and the reality is, is that the last case we had was back in uh, yeah, July, about July the 29th. But the Troy of Onions, obviously, is that they last so long. You know, it's about mm. uh, three or four months. I can uh, imagine if you saw them right, it could be up to six months. And so they're going to be in the food system for quite a while. And, you know, if without knowing where we are, you know, because the, the playbook says recall everything you can overdoing it and i think what was happening when they first came out and said uh can we just recall red onions i think they were hoping that will satisfy them but now we're getting this sort of creeping web of uh, recalls and i imagine if you remember back to the excel foods back in 2011 where we seem to have a recall product uh, added to the list every day for about a month we could well end up with that kind of thing here okay keith one last question so 
if we go to the grocery store now and we see onions, are they good to buy? So if they're safe from Canada, definitely. If they're safe from the U.S., I would definitely have a, a second look. Keith, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Okay, thank you. Cheers. Yesterday, security editor at TechCrunch tweeted out new Instagram wasn't deleting photos and direct messages from its servers, even after users thought they had deleted them. A 640 Toronto tech expert Adam Oldfield joins the show to talk about it. Welcome back. Hi. How are you doing, Kelly? Thanks for having um, me. I am great. Thanks for joining us. So how far back does this story go about Instagram saving users deleted photos and DMs? Uh, give us the background. Well, uh, originally, we were putting under a lot of scrutiny uh, years ago. We're talking back in 2016-17 with European Union's new laws that were coming out where information needed to be more in control of the users. So in this process, Instagram, Facebook, uh, even Google for that matter, uh, were under a lot of scrutiny with regards to uh, giving access and privacy controls to users to delete it. Well, what happened was they said it was been done. We've got it all figured out. Everybody can feel safe. Delete your data, download it, and you should pretty much much feel like everything current and relevant is only what we have access to. So this little situation with Instagram, kind of, well, Facebook for that matter, as the parent company, have turned into a bit of a, what do you do? What are you doing? And with the information that is being uploaded to Facebook servers, Instagram servers for that matter, uh, it's not being deleted. So they offer these little bug bounties, they call it, or hack attack, where they go in and they give uh, opportunities for white hackers to go in and try to find bugs in their system. And it was just recently announced that 90 days of deleted data where users feel their information is gone is actually still on their servers. So where you feel you can't see it, it's sitting somewhere in cyberspace on a cloud. And now that's a huge violation under European Union. And, and of course, Instagram's claiming responsibility to that and saying, we're going to resolve it, we're gonna fix it. But they've got even bigger issues. And Instagram, Facebook is about to go over another scrutiny of challenges. And that's going to be the fact that they got a $500 billion lawsuit, class action lawsuit against them right now uh, based on this exact detail where their algorithms are scanning. We have an antitrust issue that they were in front of the courts in the United States. So 2021 is going to be a very, very interesting year for what Instagram's doing and where they're going with, their, with our data, for that matter. Okay, when it comes to our data and social media apps, why, why do customer companies want to store deleted data? Well, I think a lot of it is the fact that, you know, the, the, the deleted data would be more, uh, I guess, getting rid of it from the consumer side would say, I don't want my photo up. I might have been working somewhere. I might have been with an ex or otherwise. Getting rid of that detail would be relevant. And why would a company want it is because... Yeah. Uh, first of all, they want the information for uh, background data purposes. So let's just say, for example, uh, you were traveling across Europe and you had your photos, you're in Instagram, and you were traveling with your significant other. And all of a sudden you come back, you're like, you know what, I, it didn't work out. We separated, we had our issues. Uh, and you delete all those photos because those are sore memories. That information to the company, Instagram, is quite valuable because it shows that you, as Kelly, traveled through Europe. Maybe you enjoyed Germany, France, you went through 
through Spain, you enjoyed certain uh, specifics, that information is relevant for history data for advertising purposes. So they would want to know. You obviously uh, have posted your content. Uh, that would be very advantageous for when they were looking at, you know, when the travel industry uh, reinvigorates and comes back on the market, they're going to want that information for uh, advertising reasons. So what your habits, what your actions are, and in Instagram's case, it's all images. So the algorithm and all that information sitting in their store databases, even though you think it's gone, it's still very advantageous for advertising reasons. Did I agree to that when I signed on? 100%. You are absolutely correct. When you signed in and you scrolled through and went, this is way too long and I don't know what this means and that looks very gibberish and I'm just going to go with, okay, let me upload photos. Uh, you gave all rights access and privileges to the photos you upload to the degree that I could be able to go into your Instagram account, Kelly. I could pull down the photos that I thought were quite wonderful and create my own art gallery and sell it. Legally, you would have no right or jurisdiction wow. against me. That is, uh, I don't think you'd have many buyers, but yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> I've taken some good landscapes. Wait, so if we have given our okay to this, even though, because of, out of sheer laziness and not wanting to do our due diligence with figuring out what exactly we were agreeing to, um, then what they've agreed to on their end is, yeah, you can delete it from your account, but it doesn't mean we don't own it still. And, and, and right. could they have a legal argument? Absolutely. They have a very solid argument. Uh, the one argument that is uh, standing currently, and this is one of the challenges, is that, you know, Instagram and Facebook have a phenomenal secure clause. And I'm no lawyer, but I do know it's been challenged many, many times over the last 10 years and lost every single time in court. Um, when you're uploading these photos or, or you know, your 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 thoughts or, you know, your moments of, of selfies or otherwise, um, you know, you are totally releasing all rights and freedoms of that photo to Facebook and Instagram. The class action lawsuit that was just launched this week has a little bit of a caveat that I don't think Facebook thought about. And that is if you took a selfie and I happen to be walking behind you while you took that photo, I did not give permission to Facebook or Instagram. And there is a big issue where the now photo Instagram bomber. It is. The photo bomber is about to get yeah. a massive lawsuit win. And that's Ooh. the part which Facebook and Instagram did not think through. And this is where $500 billion, by the way, is more than what Facebook actually it would be able to afford if they lost this, this class action lawsuit. But yeah, you know what? Thing. I often think about that. I got to tell you, I often think about that when I'm sitting there at a piazza somewhere in, uh, you forgot to mention my favorite country to visit, <laughs> Sorry, you know, I Italy. When I'm sitting there and I'm having an Aperol spritz, I've often thought as people start to selfie, if I'm in the background, like if I feel okay with them uploading it. Well, not only them uploading it, it's the algorithm behind it because their technology and systems mask it, track it, and use that facial recognition, which is a massive controversy, which okay. where is that data going? And that's being used by authorities. Kelly, you asked, well, who else would do that? One of the other areas is not just advertising. Uh, legal authorities are working with Facebook accordingly to be able to purchase this algorithm information based on everyone giving permissions. And this is wow. where, where is our privacy going? So you're right. Your selfie standing in the background having a little sip of your uh, latte. Little sip? Come on, you, you can get the wrong idea of me here. 
I haven't been watching. I'm tossing it back. I'm in Europe. Joie de vivre, my friend. Let me just. <laughs> I gotta, we got to touch on this before I let you go. I'm not a gamer, but this headline caught my eye. Fortnite, Fortnite developer Epic Games. They're suing Apple and Google after they have removed their video game from their app store yesterday. Give us the broad strokes on this and why Epic would sue for no money. By the way, they're not seeking money. What do they want? Absolutely. And pardon the pun, this is a game changer. And the reason why I share this with you is because they want to make an example of Apple and Google. The, the, this is, uh, again, all of this evolves and, and kind of snowballs into the avalanche of this antitrust issue. Uh, Epic Games is sitting there saying, hey, Apple, hey, Google, you are the only two platforms that are out there. And you're, you're literally scoffing back up to 30% of revenues for small application programs. And Epic is not small by any, by any uh, sense of the imagination. However, the new lawsuit is about to make an example of where Apple's ecosystem is not completely open and it's mono monopolistic in the case that Apple controls and dictates not only to its users, but to its suppliers. So if this rolls out and Fortnite has set, uh, I would say, the set essence of what's going to happen with Apple. Is it going to need to open up the platform to other services? As an example, Google has Samsung. You can download a program through their platform or Epic Games through there. So they're using this as an example to say, Apple and Google, you've got way too much control, and we're about to shake it up a little bit. At the same time, the antitrust government policies are saying, are they a monopolistic situation? Yes, it is. And I can expect that we're going to see a lot more come out from uh, apps or programs starting to push back on Apple and Google going, you're taking too much money and you're strangling us with the ability of how to grow. Thank you so much, Adam. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Have yourself a fantastic weekend. Thanks, Kelly. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your latte. All right. Well, this is interesting. Michigan has uh, become the first U.S. state to dedicate highway lanes to automated vehicles. They announced it this week. Senior analyst with Guidehouse Insights and an expert on automated vehicles, Sam Abul Samad, joins the show. Sam, good to have you back as always. Hi, Kelly. How are you today? I'm fantastic. So hopefully you're doing well. Where are we reaching you today? Uh, I'm working from my home office in Ypsilanti, Michigan, just outside of Ann Arbor. Okay, so, I mean, this is happening in your home state. Give us the broad strokes on the plan. Yeah, so um, what was announced yesterday was a plan for something called the Michigan Connected Corridor, which is intended to be a, a smart transportation corridor uh, initially between Detroit and Ann Arbor. So it's about roughly a 40-mile stretch. Um, they haven't decided exactly where it's going to be yet. Um, the, uh, uh, the state of Michigan chose a company called Cavnew, which you've probably never heard of before, uh, as the master developer of this project. Cavnew is a subsidiary of Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, which itself was spun off from Sidewalk Labs, which you may be familiar with. They were a little uh, bit. the company behind the, the Keyside Project in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the first phase of this, actually two phases that are happening in parallel, is uh, there, there's going to be uh, over about the next 18 months or so, um, detailed mapping of the roads in that corridor, um, environmental impact studies, uh, surveys of the community, uh, talking to all the various uh, organizations in the community, um, and trying to figure out exactly where they're going to do this. It's most likely going to run along Michigan Avenue, which runs uh, from Detroit all the way to Chicago. Um, and so it'll probably be along that corridor. And then in parallel with that, uh, they'll be building uh, a prototype 
of this uh, along uh, here at the uh, American Center for Mobility, uh, an automated and connected vehicles test track that's about 15 minutes from where I'm sitting right now, um, where they'll be putting together all the various technologies that they want to use, including sensors, uh, uh, connected uh, vehicle roadside units for uh, vehicle connectivity to talk to the vehicles. And the plan is to build um, these uh, laneways, as they refer to them, that would be dedicated for uh, essentially for shared mobility, you know, which uh, includes public transit vehicles, um, robo taxis, automated vehicles. Uh, and because, you know, that would give them, you know, essentially like a um, like a, an HOV access or a carpool lane for those vehicles. Uh, and they would have free access to those so they can get back and forth more easily. And then in addition to that, uh, we may have uh, access when when there's empty space in those laneways. Other vehicles could get access to those lanes, uh, but they would have to pay a toll. And so that's where the connectivity mm. and the sensors come in. So they would get automatically tolled. Uh, and then there's also a back-end cloud platform that helps to coordinate all the different mobility services, both using the laneways, but also feeding into it uh, as well. And the, the, the overall goal, the end goal, is to create um, a smoother, more seamless regional transportation system. I love it. Is is there also a goal here to make um, the just broader population more accustomed to automated vehicles by starting with their own dedicated lanes? Um, that's a, that's a piece of it, yeah. Uh, but even even before we get to the automated vehicles, and they're just having you know these shared mobility vehicles, whether they be shuttles or buses, you know, uh, any any types of, of shared mobility, um, and and making it easier for people to get. Uh, from one area to another, and you know, in the in the southeast, in the in the southwestern Ontario region, there, you know, around Toronto, uh, you know, between Hamilton and, and Toronto, and and to the east of Toronto, you know, you've got things like Go Transit. Uh, so you've got various solutions for getting around that whole region. Right now, we don't have anything like that here in southeast Michigan. If you want to go from Ann Arbor to Detroit, or you know, to other cities around Detroit, it's it can be a really complex process and waiting around. Uh, you know, transitions between different services. And so this would help to facilitate getting, you know, making transportation a lot easier for people. Sam, Detroit, it seems like a perfect choice because of the legacy of the automobile, but Mm -hmm. also is it a little bit about rebuilding their future? Oh yeah, that's, that's absolutely a part of it. You know, uh, you know, Detroit's made a lot of up, at least up until this year, you know, over the last five or six years, Detroit made a lot of progress in, you know, starting to recover. Uh, but you know, it still faces a lot of challenges. You know, it's a geographically a very large city, 137 square miles with a population of about 700,000 people. So the population tends to be very, uh, dispersed, um, you know, and there's pockets of high density, and that makes it really challenging to do traditional mass transit, you know, because it, it's hard to get enough utilization to make it economically viable. And so by combining different kinds of modes of transportation, smaller vehicles, uh, you know, different, different service providers, and connecting them all together so that you can easily go from one to another and not have long waits in between legs of a journey uh, is, is really crucial to enable people to get to work, to school, where, wherever it is they need to go. I think one of the things this pandemic's done is, is is sped up our thinking of the future, where we want to go and how we want to get there. It's pretty exciting news for the states and I, and I think probably uh, worldwide. Thank you very much for joining us, Sam. 
My pleasure as always. Well, that's it for the Kelly Cutrera podcast. Join me weekdays, 9 till noon, live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.